Well, I hope you're having a great Monday already. If you're watching on the day this was posted, yesterday was Easter. And I hope you were able to either be in person at a church, uh, some of you for the first time in a year, or you were able to watch us online. Uh, we had a wonderful time. And we know that some people even do both, which is, which is great. But I hope it was a great day for you. Now, this is part two. Who told you what God wanted in worship? We did part one two weeks ago, and then we had a special one in between last week. You really need to have heard the one two weeks ago or review it now, because we talked about cargo cults and how close they are to the way we actually do religion. My entire life, we were very, very concerned about how to worship God in a way that he would accept it. We didn't want our worship to be rejected like that of Cain or to make him angry like that of Nadab and Abihu. Those examples were brought up repeatedly, very, very frequently. And we were told we must worship the Lord in spirit, but also in truth. And Jesus's words, those are Jesus's words. So yes, we have to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. But what about that truth? What is, what is the truth? Now we're not playing pilot here <clears throat> and trying to fob it off by going, what is truth? We believe there is a truth. Is worship something that is highly regulated by God? And if we get it even slightly wrong, are we going to be displeasing to God? We're very upset about that possibility. We were also under constant threat that if we did something that was looked upon as unsound or not according to the pattern, the, all the other churches in our tribe would get angry at us and we'd get written up is the expression. People would write in their monthly periodicals to attack us. And we didn't want that to happen. So we, we towed the line very, very seriously, very, very formally. And it was a very formal set of rules. All of this must be done, and all of this must be done in a certain way. And my religious tribe is not at all unique in that. There are not a lot of room for innovation in a lot of these churches. And if you're thinking, well, I go to a modern community church that does all kinds of hill songs type stuff, and we are always allowed to innovate. innovate. Really? What if you had uh, a Sunday where you just did old songs out of the 1800s and did contemplative uh, sermon uh, exegesis from a passage? I think you'd throw off a lot of your people because they really think this, I only worship when it looks like this. And I only feel that I've worshipped when it feels like this. Worship is a very complicated thing. And we were always warned that there was a pattern. And I brought up a couple of weeks ago. I was even presented with a book, 660 pages long, Behold the Pattern. And it, it went into excruciating detail about how if you didn't do everything exactly right in worship and an organization of the church and such, then you would not be pleasing to God and you would be part of that many that would be lost, not the few that would be saved. Then I read the Bible. I know that sounds funny. I'd read the Bible many times before. In fact, our church was really good at that. And that's one of the, the many blessings I got out of being raised in that particular tribe. We, we read the Bible. Now, we would do it in a couple of different ways. One is that you'd have this thing where we're going to read through the Bible in a year. And so we would do that. Uh, you would you would get little prizes or not so much prizes, maybe a star in a little box in a Bible class. 
if you worked your way all through them. And probably more than a few of us skipped a bit of Lamentations in Ezekiel, but we didn't tell anyone, so we moved on. But the other way we tended to read scripture was proof texting, because the great tragedy of the Bible being divided into chapters and verses by man is that instead of one flowing narrative, it became a series of discrete sayings, commandments, regulations, points to be made. And so we would go through the Bible and harvest those points. We would even have what came to be known as concordant sermons, where somebody would look up all of the verses that say baptism, and then no matter where they were, what the context was, uh, they would put them all together and make them one cohesive sermon. We would do the same with faith or, or anything else like this, elders or deacons. Problem was, when you take things out of their context, you end up with a pretext. It loses all value. There were, in the Old Testament, as you read, excruciating details, hundreds of laws, over 600. According to about every source I can find and every sermon I've heard and every book I've read, I did not count them myself. As a man who loves science, I have to admit I did not do the research. But it seems everybody else did, and they come up with 600-plus laws in the Old Testament. Many, many, many of them are about worship, but there were there were several different forms of worship in the Old Testament, um, mainly centered around the temple or the tabernacle, and then also worship by the way that you lived your life. And so all of these different rules were there. And then we go to the New Testament. You ready? You have your seatbelts on and your tray tables and they're upright and locked position. We don't even get a description of a worship service in the New Testament. Not one. And before you run to 1 Corinthians and say, no, wait, wait, here, Paul is showing how to do the Lord's Supper. Go back and listen to the two-part series on who told you about the Lord's Supper. When we show what the context of that was, he was showing them how to relate to each other in terms of a fellowship meal and that Jesus intended for us to remember him at the meals that we had with each other, which were highly encouraged daily, not just once a quarter or once a week. And to rip it out and make it a very tiny part of a worship with a little sip of juice and a little bit of stale cracker misses every one of Jesus's points. So don't go there. We had five acts of worship. We had reading, prayer, singing, giving, and teaching. To the point where if you failed to do any of those, it was considered to be not worship and, and unacceptable to God. And they're very serious about that. And again, my tribe was not unique. You can um, ask the Roman Catholics, what part can we leave out of the Mass? Or you can ask the Episcopalians, you can ask the Lutherans, you can ask the Baptists, you get my point. All of us have our own set of these are the basic irreducible minimums. These are the minimums you must have to be pleasing to God. But the New Testament never gives them. It never lists them. I'm going to pull a statistic just out of the air because, again, I didn't do the research on this. But in all my years of working with churches, I would really guess that 95% of all church fights are about the worship hour. Now, a lot of those, if we're being very honest, have their roots in personalities, 
power struggles, family struggles. But at least on the surface, they're all about the worship hour and arguments about the songs, about the sermon, about the whatever. And yet the New Testament doesn't spend time laying out for us exactly what God intends for worship. Now, can you play concordance sermon or a version of it and run around the New Testament and grab different bets and shove them together to make a worship service? Kind of. But when you do, it's a Franken-monster. It is just horrible because it's all out of context and it, it looks it and it feels it. And if we're being very honest with ourselves, when we leave church sometimes, we're aware that it's empty and didn't quite do it. And then we blame ourselves or preachers will blame us and say, if you didn't get anything out of it, you didn't put anything into it. True enough. There's a lot about that which is true. And worship is not there to entertain us and it's not there to make us happy, which we need to remember. Because I've had a lot of folk, whenever something is done, which is a little new, not according to the pattern they knew, they uh, come and say, I, I was very uncomfortable with what happened today. And, and um, I'm just very uncertain about this. Okay, first of all, where'd you ever get the idea that Jesus was interested in you being comfortable? I mean, a lot of churches have crosses around the place. That I'd call that a clue. Your comfort's not what Jesus is going for. And then they'll say this, the people today just want to be entertained. Stop it. Everybody, everybody who says that, without exception, is entertained by the way they like things being done. It makes them feel happy, satisfied, complete, uh, good with God, right with God, that the exchange, the transaction had been made. And you just don't want them to have their own set of things that make them feel happy. You see, if we're doing worship right, those of us that lead worship, everybody in the room should be equally dissatisfied because it's not about them. It's not tailored for them. And if it is, we've done it wrong. So if the New Testament doesn't even describe a worship service, what, what, what are we gonna, what are we gonna do about that? Well, first of all, we even have to admit, New Testament doesn't even use the term worship service. Now, people often go from this when they realize this and say, everything we do is worship. And I'm not really there, honestly, I'm not. You know, when I'm mowing the lawn, I'm really not worshiping God. A lot of you are, because you love mowing the lawn and you love being out in nature, but nature is where I park my car. I, I don't really care for mowing the lawn. I do it because I'm a, uh, I'm a guy and I wanna take care of my wife and she doesn't wanna live in a forest preserve. So I, I do mow, but I don't call that worship. I don't think that's right. I think it needs to be intentional. I think it needs to be focused. But I'm not going to fight you over it. You know, we get more detail about what Christian worship looked like from Roman spies and the way it was written up like by Tacitus than we do in the New Testament. We really do. New Testament worship looks a, a whole lot Jewish, like synagogue, actually. But it was never enforced. And we'll get to this when we cover church leadership and uh, diversity. But in Acts 15, whenever they couldn't agree upon how to worship, the elders of the Church of Jerusalem just sent them home saying, just leave each other alone and just don't act like pagans. That's it. Gave them zero direction. 
Why? Because they were different peoples from different places and they needed different things. The New Testament is not extremely interested in what form we do when we get together. It is very interested in how you live out your faith in the cultures and situations in which you find yourself, including when you gather to worship. In 1 Corinthians 11, he wasn't going after this is the form the Lord's Supper must take or God won't like you. He was saying, stop mistreating each other and show each other consideration. Remember what we're doing this for. In other words, how do you live out what you claim you believe? Outside and inside of the gatherings, the communal worships between all of us, all right? Um, so is there no pattern then? Is there no pattern at all? Actually, behold the pattern. There is a pattern in scripture. And when I read the Bible without going for proof text and just trying to say, what is going on here? pattern leaps off the page. Many of you know Micah 6 and verse 8, and I like, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. That's a very, very simple thing there. But I like the first two verses there too, the, um, the two leading verses in there. Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Okay, this sounds interesting because this is written in the Old Testament. It's part of the Old Testament and 600 plus laws. So what does the Lord require when I walk in the door? Because let's be honest, nobody's going to remember 600 plus laws. So how do, what does God require? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams 10,000 rivers of, of olive oil. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This is called hyperbole to make a point. He has shown you, O mortal, that would be us, what is good and what the Lord requires. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Well, that doesn't sound like Deuteronomy to me or Leviticus, another book we might have skimmed more than read. They're very important books, by the way, and I believe that they are certainly part of God's story with us and our story with God. But when it came right down to it, what was God going for with the rules? Don't focus on the rules. What was he going for? Then you go to the New Testament. Jesus' brother, James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless. Oh my goodness. Pure and faultless? Amen. What do I need to do? Look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Excuse me? Most preachers, if they're trying to be hired... Uh, by a church, and that church calls them in, regardless of denomination. That church calls them in and and looks at them and goes, "All right, what's your what's your ministry philosophy? What is it that you think is foremost? And what do you think about the Bible?" And they go, "You know, I really think all we're supposed to be doing here is taking care of the 
the thrown away and the unprotected and the lost and the looked over, the orphans, the widows. And just don't act like the world. Don't let the world get you dirty. I don't think anybody's going to hire him. And yet that is exactly what the brother of Jesus said it's all about. That's the pattern. And in fact, you keep finding the pattern. You like First Corinthians? Good. So do I, actually. It's an amazing book. And you, you have to read between the lines because you're reading somebody else's mail. And you've only got part of the mail exchange. But how about just a few chapters after that Lord's Supper thing and, and 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Well, does that, is it, now he's going to show us who we're allowed to fellowship, how you become a Christian, um, how you are to worship God and what are the boundaries that you're not allowed to do. And all of these rules on morality and playing cards and dancing. No. In fact, he's going to up the ante. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. And a lot of people go, aha, that's everything Paul ever wrote. No, no, he's about to tell you what, what he means. The gospel that you have to hold on to and be firm. For I received what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to the, all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. What? That's a gospel? I mean, where, where are all the rules? Where, where's, we have to have rules. We cannot have chaos. Everything must be done decently and in order. Oh, was that one used out of context? Paul says, guys, just remember, Jesus, the Son of God, came, lived here, died, and was resurrected. That's the good news. Death can't take you. Jesus has you. And that's good news. Got to confess, growing up, they would say, now the gospel means good news, and I could just not get it, because nothing sounded good. It sounded impossible. Oh, what, what God was saying and what God was offering was beautiful, but it was like fruit in a very high tree. I knew I would never be able to reach it. I had no idea that God was bending the tree right down for us, saying, it's all right, I got this. That's the good news. We could do more. The pattern is all through scripture. In Matthew 25, Jesus, who's the only human being ever walked on the planet that knows exactly what's going to happen on the day of judgment. And he says in there, you come into heaven because you treated people kindly. You fed them, you clothed them, you visited them. You risked yourself by going to visit them in prison because back then when you visited in prison, uh, they would kind of take notes. All right, you're, you're visiting them, huh? We better watch you. Going, listen, you didn't care about your reputation. You just loved people. And he never mentions doctrine or how you worshiped or what the name was on the building outside or whether you watched online or whether you got in a car and went somewhere and sat with a mask or not mask. Hmm. Well, the pattern continues. Read First John. We're not going to read it here. You have time and we've already gone, what, 19 minutes? I got to quit here real fast because these are too long. But read First John. We know we're saved. We know we're saved. How? Because we love each other. Huh. I love Mark chapter 2. 
and verse 25 and forward. David, back in the Old Testament, he and his band of gorillas and marauders, they, they got hungry. And so they went to the tabernacle and they just grabbed the bread off the altar, which you're not allowed to do. The table of showbread, no, not allowed to do. Back in, in, in the books of Samuel, uh, you could die for that. And Jesus said, no, it's okay, because he was hungry. In the Old Testament, there was like a death penalty and Jesus is going, no, it's, no, it's, it's all right. He was hungry. David's hunger trumped the other. He wasn't doing it to be mean. He wasn't doing it to be, to be malicious. He had no other access to food. They were hungry. God cares if you're hungry. So eat the food. Wow. Last one I'll do. First Peter chapter four and verse eight. Love one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Either it does or it doesn't, but that's the pattern. God says it does. And all through scripture, love and mercy trump sterile law. Look for it. It's there. Not on every page, but enough pages that if you just read it, you can see a pattern. So what does God want from our worship? What do you got? Bring it with love. We'll talk soon.